Hello and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for LA Commotion, and this time around I'm joined by Alyssa Walker, the Urbanism Editor for Curb, and Arch Angelino, who writes about walking, uh, cycling, uh, land use, all the sort of great issues that are coming up and bubbling up in sort of California uh, land use and mobility, and, uh, and has been a frequent guest at LA Commotion, last year leading a workshop on reimagining our streets on the public day. So it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us, Alyssa. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, so I, you know, there's so much to talk about here. I guess the first question I want to lead off with is, is you know, is thinking about, it's been a really sort of tough time uh, in Los Angeles and California in recent weeks with the defeat of a number of bills that would have really sort of transformed the landscape of both the city of LA and also greater California um, because of how it tied land use and mobility together. And so one of those, of course, was SB 50, Senate Bill 50, which has been effectively tabled until December, as far as I can tell. Uh, and then there was a defeat of all sorts of other housing bills that really would have helped alleviate California's housing crisis um, and, you know, and basically sort of massively upzone along transit routes. And they were all shut down by NIMBYist homeowners. So, Except um, for like one, half of one. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess the first question is, yeah, I mean, looking, looking at uh, you know California going into the summer here, you know what what's sort of your take on on where we are with this? I, I mean, you know, does SB fifty have any real chance? And and yeah, I'm, I'm curious your take on the Angelinas you know about how they sort of felt about this because it's pretty easy to imagine Beverly Hills and 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 Atherton being against this kind of bill, but I would imagine most people are in favor of it. At least most there of was, us who are not homeowners. Yeah, there there was a poll that came out. It actually was released on the day that we found out it was being shelved, but it said two thirds of likely voters did support SB fifty, and I think that's really important to know when you go into uh, this, these discussions about it because the people who make the most noise are the people, like you say, the the wealthy, mostly white homeowners who live in desirable areas and often close to transit um, who don't want anyone else to live near them, <laughs> to put it the nicest way, and, and are particularly frightened of tall buildings. So uh, what SB 50 would have done, you kind of just you mentioned it, 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 it became very complicated towards the end of the bill as it went through all these different uh, committee meetings. But it, it was a pretty simple idea that we should be building taller in places that can help people to change their behavior by locating more people closer to transit. And what happened that was really cool, there was an earlier version of the bill from the last legislative session, which got a lot of criticism because it didn't do enough to protect communities that could be in threat of being displaced. And gentrification is always a concern when like a train, a new train line, shiny new train line comes into a neighborhood like ones in LA where we haven't had any kind of good transportation you know, service or system for a long time. These are neighborhoods that have just not been invested in at all. So new train line comes in, things are going to change. So it was great because um, Senator Weiner, who Scott Weiner, who proposed that bill and this one, um, really did go try to to all these groups and get some feedback and, and did a lot of outreach and a lot of people were much more comfortable with this version of the bill that had a lot of carve outs for certain neighborhoods and also just in certain places where if the city had already taken means to upzone around transit or had come up with their own kind of inclusionary zoning, they you could, you know, you got a little bit more leeway. But again, I mean, it seemed like 
most people, and there were still groups that were against it, and there were still for good reasons. Um, but it seemed like most people had, you know, agreed with like the way it had been reformulated. Um, but again, all the press and all the coverage was of people who said, if a five-story building goes up at the end of my street, it will be the end of the world. And I think that's part of the problem when we talk about any of these things related to transportation and housing. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. And I'm curious, you know, what do you, how, do you, how do you see, you know, the sort of culture of mobility in Los Angeles? It's pretty easy for, you know, for those of us looking in from afar, I'm a New Yorker, um, to look at, you know, top line statements like the passage of Measure M in 2016, raising $100 billion for transit. Um, looking at, you know, Phil Washington, the CEO of Metro, calling for congestion pricing, and you know, and, and imagining that in LA is just incredible. But then I'm also been dismayed by reading, um, you know, there's some analysis by Michael Manville at UCLA, which seems to signal that the old onion story is true, that Angelinos are willing to fund transit so that you will take transit while I can drive to work in my car, <laughs> which is, you know, great that they get the money, but it seems a little dismaying in terms of like sort of actually changing behavior in this and sort of the SB 50 and, and the defeat of these housing bills sort of brings that up. So uh, I'm curious, you know, how, how do you feel about sort of Los Angeles at this point in time and its mobility evolution? Well, it, it's the the the, con the conversation around congestion pricing now has started to maybe change that. And I'm glad you brought up Michael Manville because he's like my congestion pricing hero who has really explored a lot of the issues of around what will actually change behavior. You can make transit pretty good and you can, uh, you know, make sure it gets to most people and people still are, are choosing to drive. I'm not saying our system is to the point where it's going to be always convenient to take over driving, but you see people taking like the Expo line, which goes from Santa Monica to downtown, like ridership is up on, on certain lines and certain routes. And you can see, because you actually do get there faster in some cases than driving. Um, but I think the, the bigger thing to look at is, is what is going to change behavior? Because if, if you really are going to be investing all this money as we are, you, you said what you said was like, you know, part of an even larger um, expansion that we're doing it in all sorts of ways, rail and bus. And, but then at the same time, we've cut a little bit of service because ridership is down and we don't have the revenue coming in in the same way we used to. We need to change the conversation even more. And congestion pricing would work really well in LA, first of all, because we have, we already have some like uh, high occupancy, high, high occupancy lanes uh, they have a tolling system. They have a little fast track thing that you put in your car and you can go in these express lanes in different parts of the city. But because people would be so willing to shift those trips or to change the way they make those trips or reconsider how they're getting places, if they just had a little bit of an incentive to do so, and if you have cheap parking and if you have a highway system that's being widened every uh, every year or so, and if you have people who are spending, you know, a lot on their cars and want to drive them and perceive that to be free, that change isn't going to happen. And now we actually have, we have a, an argument with, if we put the rail lines in, if we improve our bus service, we need more dedicated bus lanes. And if we have things like micromobility, like our bikes and things like Uber and Lyft c contributing more ideas, Bird just debuted what a bike this week and actually we're beyond scooters we're going we're going back to bikes now um which is great um you we, we, the argument is that you do actually have options and that's what everybody had always been saying like oh well we can't do that until the options are in place now the options are in place and now you need to have to be able to pay to use those freeways in the same way you've been you know paying to use transit 
Well, this raises the question, and this is your core of your recent work is, but you know, once once we are all taking transit in Los Angeles, what are we going to do with those streets that were once filled with cars? And, you know, you've written a series of articles, your latest is sort of the future of LA is walking. And, you know, you were kind enough to quote me in the past one on like the future of the sidewalk, because, you know, if, and for those of you who've attended LA Commotion, you know, we've typically had it on Carlton Street, which doesn't have a sidewalk. So the whole street does become sort of open. And um, I'm curious, you know, you know, you, you sort of invade against the fact that, you know, that Los Angeles and its leadership sort of nods towards, you know, it has ambitious sustainability goals, and there are some great people doing great work, but, you know, that you dig a little deeper and you still find these systems that are producing streets for cars, that are still pushing towards car ownership, electric, not internal combustion engine. Um, so I'm curious, you, have, you know, when you're working on your, your articles for Curbed on this and thinking about this, is there a master Alyssa Walker narrative as to how we should rethink the street <laughs> and the city of L.A.? When, beyond your book come just, out? Beyond just ban cars. Yeah, I mean, my book is just ban cars, and that's it. It's just one page. Um, they, I think, like the 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 Green New Deal, which is you know this uh, larger concept that's sweeping the nation, but also we have our own, as you do in New York, with uh, our mayor introduced it introduced the Green New Deal as really just a branded sustainability strategy for the city, but called the Green New Deal to be cool, like the cool kids, which is fine. So now we actually have some numbers, which is what I've been asking for, you know, for two decades that I've been living here. Like, what's the goal here? What are we actually, we've never had any kind of targets to hit for, well, we, I don't think we know how many cars are in the city, or we don't know how many trips are being taken. We don't have that kind of granular information to begin with, but now we have a goal. The goal is for 50% of trips to be taken by walking, biking, taking transit by 2035, and then to have a completely zero emission transportation fleet top to bottom, even private cars by 2050. That's, I, I also don't think quite aggressive enough. I think we probably need to do a little bit better than that, but at least we now can look at that. So then I, I look at that, and then I look at like what's being proposed, say, you know, Metro is building out all this transit, but yet won't dedicate a lane for buses, right? On, a, on this major street where they are putting a new bus lane, putting new buses on the, they're putting new buses on the street and they're wanting everybody to take transit and get and get places, but you can't, you know, the buses aren't, aren't going to go out any, any faster than the cars. And then you got to think it back to like the walk to the bus stop. We don't even have like shelters at all of our, our bus stops, right? You don't even have a place to stand in the shade. You don't have any kind of real-time information at very few bus stops around the city. And then the walk to get there, it might be, you know, completely treacherous based on whatever kind of sidewalk you're having to walk on, how old it is, when the last time it was repaired, uh, could be one or two generations in some parts of the city. And you might not feel safe. It might not be well lit. Again, the tree problem, we don't have enough shade. So you really have to look at like what's going to get people to that transit, what's going to get people to walk out their front door and make a different decision. And if you don't have the basics, like the walking, the biking, the, the trees, the, the bike lanes, the bus lanes, that's a decision that's going to be, you, you might even decide, I will take the train, but I'm going to take a car to get to the train. And that that's that's not going to work. That's not going to get us to that goal. Well, it's it's interesting in that regard. I mean, I guess my question then is is you know, when you think about this, who's most responsible for this? I mean, I'm not sure we're allowed to even criticize Salida on this podcast, but you know, she does run LADOT. Um, you know, I mean, who do you, who do you think is at fault in this or who's, you know, who's trying to who are the who are the heroes and villains, I guess, in this narrative? I would never criticize Salida <laughs> because she is doing God's work <laughs> in that position. The people that I would criticize and I would really hold to account here are 
our city council members. We The way that the city is run in LA, we have 15 council districts. Uh, we just had an election and hopefully we'll have one more uh, different face on there that will hopefully be a woman um, in the next few weeks once that uh, election results and runoff take place. Um, but, the, but the most important thing to know is that each of those council members runs their district like its own kingdom. So you might have dockless bike share in one district, and then you will go across the border and you, you know, are not allowed to pick up a bike or a scooter in that place. Some of them, some of the districts have a lot of trees because they have, the, the council members have really made sure that there's shade and, and cooling infrastructure in parts of the city. Some people go back and fight for safety improvements, um, w w you know, ask Salida for safety improvements. Some have banned safety improvements from their districts. No, like literally saying, no road diets in my district, signing a paper, a page that says that. That's not how you run a city. That's not how you allocate money. That's not how you make decisions that are going to save lives or get people to get out of their carbon spewing uh, vehicles. So until that changes or something, something like what's happening in, in D.C. and New York, where they're implementing these like vision zero standards across the city. So anytime like a sidewalk is repaired or a crosswalk is repaired, you have to put in a bump out, you know, or you have to make sure that you uh, put a bike lane in if you're if you're repairing a street. We don't have anything like that. And though a lot of money is pouring in right now to make infrastructural changes, for we also have a gas tax on top of um, like uh, the things we voted on for transit locally. We have a state gas tax that gives us money. They're just paying money to fix it the way it used to be. And so we don't have any kind of cohesive strategy for designing the streets that we want to use in 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to come back to the Green New Deal for a moment because one of the things I find fascinating at the federal level, um, and you know, I say this as um, you know, my congressional rep is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, is that she and other advocates that they have this huge blind spot. It would appear for transportation and mobility issues. This seems to be. I mean, there's there's very little about it in the resolution of the Green New Deal itself in Congress, and, and it's really interesting to sort of see. You know, if you want to wade, those of us who wade into the endless wars on Twitter, um, you can sort of see. You know, that there's this um, this almost antipathy uh, on, on in some ways towards the, these particular modes. Like, I think I I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to armchair uh, psychoanalyze my representative too much, but I, I get the feeling it sort of ties into these debates about um, you know equity and access versus you know, these sort of larger, more clean modes in the, in the aggregate. And I think of the recent paper by uh, David King from Arizona State, and I believe Manville was his co-author, where they sort of argued, and it struck me almost as a sort of um, modest proposal-esque paper, arguing for universal auto access, where they basically argued that if America has invested so far, so far gone investing in automotive infrastructure, then we should effectively subsidize or practically give away cars to the poorest members of society so they would not be penalized in their transit deserts. And it was a sort of, it was a really sort of sad pragmatic reading of the situation, I thought. And I feel like some of the authors of the Green New Deal feel that way. And this is why you end up a lot of stuff around electric vehicles, I feel, rather than investing in this, because we've sort of reached this point, obviously, where walkable urbanism is a luxury product as witnessed in real estate prices and everything else. So it's a, it's yeah. a bizarre Gordian knot, it strikes me, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. It is. And I think it's, I mean, I, something like sidewalk policy has always been a blind spot at the federal level. I mean, what if they, if there was the infrastructure bill was just like fix every sidewalk and put, you know, bus shelters at every bus stop. That would be, I would, you know, vote for that person, the candidate. <laughs> I love, there, was a ver, there was a version of that for the, for the scooter minutes, which we should come to, you know, in Washington, D.C., <laughs> 
Where a city council member yeah. there proposed, like, why don't we just build bike racks at every intersection in Washington for two to three million dollars? And I'm like, that's the most brilliant idea I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> it's so simple. Yeah, little things like that. But that's not, you know, I don't know if that gets you the the um, you know fired up in the debates if someone's going to shout that out. But maybe I'm, I'm I'm still hoping for that. We've got a lot of candidates running now. A lot of candidates. Um, yeah, it's if you read the Green New Deal, it's it's supposed to be like this framework, right, for for not, not too specific, but it's actually in the transportation section. It's very specific. It's yes. like electric vehicles, um, public transportation, which is vague, and then high-speed rail. It's like a three-point bullet. And like that's really all it says in the whole thing. So what are we supposed to extrapolate from that? I guess like all these little things fall in somewhere into the public transit aspect. I haven't really seen anybody go to bat for high-speed rail. I mean... <laughs> Well, I haven't even like seen no, not, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, just target it just on, you know, your representative, but like, I don't see any real conversations going on about the way that the federal railroad administration took away, wants to take away California's high speed rail money. Um, which, Cause they claim we canceled it, which may or may not be true depending on who you believe in what press conference you saw with our governor, but we don't really see any, any, you know, fighting for us at, uh, and talking about, which is supposed to be this, tentpole of, of the Green New Deal. And then the other side of it, the electric cars, is really interesting because there has been one policy proposal, um, a bill proposed under like, so that's supposed to be in alignment with the Green New Deal. And it's this idea that the U.S. will end sales of gas-powered vehicles by 2040. Again, kind of too late. It's not really going to uh, change much for about 20 years after that date, but that's okay. Um, at least it's something to work with. But you still didn't see any kind of like equity component of that. And what the better thing, the, a better thing to introduce is, is more like what I'm seeing in a limited way here in LA and also in Sacramento where I traveled for a story last year is making sure that every low income resident of the city has access to a shared electric vehicle to kind of like leapfrog this problem, right? So it's not like we want to make sure that everyone can get a car or have access to a car or even buy a car. And you know, the, the, the stats too, about how many people are defaulting or about to default on their auto loans. It's yes. like another, you know, we have like a subprime with seven, with mortgage. seven year financing rate. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whole, no, uh, it's really terrifying. And also these are mostly used cars and older cars that are going to be dirtier and worse to be driving around anyway. So I love this idea of, I mean, yes, we can pass this 2040, you know, let's stop, let's ban the sales of cars. We, it should probably be like 2030 to, if we're being honest with ourselves or just tell automakers they can't sell their cars here anymore, period, unless they do it. Um, but the, the real policy part of that should be these really smart programs, which are putting shared vehicles, you know, in the housing projects that are, you know, have the, you know, people who are all, already living there who are not are transit dependent or need to get places for jobs that are even far away. And so this is like a really smart strategy that we're seeing in, in some cities. And that's kind of what needs to take off. Yeah. No, I'm recalling now you rightfully throwing shade at AOC on Twitter when she explicitly <laughs> suggested that congestion pricing was not part of the Green New Deal, which you rightfully suggested that perhaps it should be. And this comes, <laughs> and this comes back to it. I think she, she sees that uh, in the particular case, given her constituents in the Bronx, that she is very worried that it is effectively going to be a regressive tax on her constituents. And it'll be interesting to see here in New York politics about whether they can actually structure that in a way that it's not, although I have my doubts. And to your point, and your point about high-speed rail, I mean, and this gets to, you know, we now we can segue to discussion of like the boring company and, and their Las Vegas and, and all of these sort of fads. <laughs> it's, it, make, it strikes me as really sad, you know, that, um, that, you know, here in New York, for example, where we, sit, we effectively 
cannot build a, 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 or expand the subway system in any reasonable cost base. And like many others have pointed out, you know, what makes New York City more expensive than anything. And um, but I love this phrase I read recently, which perhaps has floated around, the, the notion that America is a post-developed society, which is we've just simply, <laughs> That's very we've, true. we've gone past the point where we can make any sort of manage, in, in, large-scale infrastructure projects manageable due to all sorts of sort of failures there. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting about how they can sort of finance that. But but yeah, I'm curious, you know, you wrote recently about the boring company in Las Vegas and, you know, and of course, you know, like Elon Musk, you know, drilling tunnels under Los Angeles to reach his homes in Bel Air, um, you know, classic. <laughs> homes, he has like five homes. Yeah. Exactly. Holly, Holly White's ghost smiles on this. This is exactly what it was predicted. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, what, you know, I'm curious your, your, your read on that. And also like, you know, what, I mean, other than just sort of the notion of, you know, electeds wanting to have that shovel, you know, moment and saying that they're progressive technologists, um, what causes them to fall for this kind of thing versus investing in pride and in, in tried and true methods? Well, I think there's been one interesting development, you know, with a, another change in leadership with a, a woman taking over. I'm just going to keep bringing that up throughout the course of this podcast, but, um, in Chicago, uh, Rahm Emanuel was very enamored with uh, Elon Musk and uh, wanted to build this tunnel from downtown to O'Hare Airport, a place that already has a train going to it, I want to mention. But if this would be faster. <laughs> and not a train, I don't think. So um, he was really excited, and they got the RFP or for a billion dollars or something like that. But then um, the new mayor came in, and she doesn't believe in this technology, doesn't believe the city needs it. And that deal is basically done. I guess also some um, Chicago representatives came to the opening of the boring company um, that I attended in December and may have changed their mind after they took a ride <laughs> on, on a, in a Tesla on a bumpy underground um, tunnel. So uh, I, I think maybe some of them are wising up or at least asking better questions. The thing about what's happening in in Vegas is interesting, though, because it kind of does fit uh, Vegas's um, transportation strategy. I mean, this isn't really a place that is uh, governed by reason. It's kind of about the theme park ride. It's kind of about this entertainment investment, which is fine. And that convention center is really big. I know you've been there for CES and probably experienced how far a walk that is. So it's, it is going to be a funny, uh, you know, folly like uh, thing that that's going to be that's, you know, is, is just being paid for with the convention center's money. So it's, it's really not taking public funds, even though the, the city did uh, vote to take away the light rail project that they were hoping to build there to actually help people get around. So um, there's some conflicting narratives going on there. But then you look at like, I don't know, here in LA, right? So the other boring company plan that's supposedly not um, not yet shelved is a, an idea to dig a tunnel from one of the red line stations, not very, not very far from my house where I'm talking to you from right now, to Dodger Stadium. And it is true that Dodger Stadium is, uh, you know, it's a stadium in the middle of a city. It's on the top of a hill. It's, it's hard to get to um, for many different reasons. It also has like a, you know, it's in a mountain range in a way, and it has like cliffs on the backside of it. You can't really walk up from the other side or get up very easily. Um, but again, avoiding this like simple solution in, in favor of building a tunnel. And again, I don't think it would be public funds, but it would be disruptive. It would be only operable on game days. <laughs> and it would just be, I think, these 16 passenger Tesla vans driving through a tunnel, um, a distance of about two miles. So it's, again, like this simple solution, like improving the walkability to Dodger Stadium, 
putting some electric bikes all around. Maybe they could be like blue Dodger blue bikes that you could ride up and down. Putting like even some escalators up and I was down the hill. Say, you got to go people, get like right? you know twenty first century angels flight. Get some funiculars yeah. going there. <laughs> and there is a, a gondola planned um, from Union Station to Dodger Stadium as well, which will you know is kind of more a ride. But actually, even that the capacity of that is way more than just driving some 16 passenger vans through a tunnel. So again, just overlooking really the most, the simplest solution. And, and for what to, to, to say that we're in favor of a, a car centric society and a car centric solution for the future. Again, it, it doesn't really align with, you know, the, the ideals that have been laid out in the sustainability plan. Well, I would say we're, we're nearing the end of the podcast here, and by law, we have to discuss micromobility. Um, so <laughs> so two, two big things in LA. One, I'm curious, you know, how, how sort of your perceptions of sort of how the experiment's going. When we had Salida on the podcast a while back, you know, the city council had just approved these mass rollouts. And second, of course, you know, there's, you know, Salida's uh, uh, crown jewel, the mobility day specification, which I think also by law comes up in every podcast I host. Um, but is there, you know, is a really ambitious effort to to rein all this stuff in and is expanding across the country. And now there is another Senate bill, or not a Senate bill, an Assembly bill, AB 1112, um, that would once again preempt local, the efforts by cities to regulate these disruptive new mobility companies. So I'm curious your read on that situation as well. And has anyone proven that like Uber and Lyft are the ones actually backing that, or is it just simply presumed that these tech companies yeah. are behind it? That's a good question. I mean, I know the the uh, the assembly member who introduced it, Laura Friedman, is a great safe streets advocate and is very you know pro transit. I spoke on a panel that she hosted that was at the Glendale uh, MetroLink station. That she's very very um, active on these issues. So I don't think the intention is to protect um, private transportation companies or or any you know. I don't think there's like a nefarious like. Uh, you know, uh, GM streetcar <laughs> conspiracy of, uh, of yeah, I, I don't think that we were trying to take out big scooter or something like that right here, but, um, uh, or protect big scooter. I don't know which, 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 I don't know which conspiracy theory people hold, but I, I do think it, it's a, it's an, it's an important idea, especially when, like I said, city by city can govern these things, especially in a place like LA, you know, we have 88 cities in the County. I can't get from, my, if I wanted to go to Beverly Hills on a jump bike, I can't leave the jump bike in Beverly Hills because they have different rules about that. So it's super inconvenient when you're trying to get somewhere and you go to park your bike and there's rules about what you can do and where and who gets that information. So I do think something on the state level um, should be considered, especially when it comes to this data question, which I think has kind of gotten a little bit blown out of proportion. Um, I have been following MDS conversation from the very beginning. And I think that one part of the whole data debate that I'm really missing is what has anyone even done with this data yet? A lot of people have been collecting it. A lot of cities have been collecting it. Santa Monica has now not at the MDS level of data, but they have, you know, they're going to, this is their third summer of having these vehicles on their street. And Santa Monica has put in tons of new infrastructure, a lot, a lot more protected lanes. They put parking zones in the street. They're well marked. They, they're actually making the steps to, they're, they're actually taking the steps to make it a better place to get around on these vehicles. And you go to Santa Monica and it's like micromobility wonderland. I mean, you can ride any type of vehicle there and they're, they're all where you need them. And, and I'm, I feel very safe getting around there. 
until cities are going to use the data for something that that's going to you know improve the experience I, I it's so easy to push back and say well we don't need this we don't need this if you could show me that you looked at the data of where people were riding and you convinced the city to put in a protected lane there because there were a lot of people taking scooters or bikes there then that would be i think a really good argument for getting the data and if a city could do that then you could hold that up as a shining example and say this look what we did this is why we need this information yeah what do you think? You mentioned earlier, you know, the new bird design that just came out. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, it is essentially um, an electric bicycle without pedals. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I, I, you know, I'm curious your take on it because I thought it was interesting in the sense of, you know, that really up until now, Jump has built the only, uh, you know, the only sort of uh, micro mobility mode that is not destroyed in 30 days or less. And, <laughs> You know, and was praised for it at the micro mobility conference in San Francisco this uh, this winter. Um, yeah, it seems like sort of you know birds following in that sort of tradition. And um, yeah, I'm curious. You know, as as a, as, a, as a cyclist, as an advocate of that, I mean, do you think it's a good thing we're going back to the bicycle form factor? You joked about it earlier, but it struck me as a promising development that the days of the of yeah. the flimsy scooter might be behind us. I know. I called for this from the beginning because you know I see the scooter as. I see the scooter through the, the lens of like my children. I had never rode a scooter driving. I had never rode a scooter when I was growing up. Um, I learned how to ride a bike and, you know, hopefully that has influenced some of my uh, cycling advocacy through the years. But um, it's a really good device for certain trips. It's, for, it's great for a small kid that wants to keep up with their parent for like a short distance. Right. But I personally can't use a scooter I'm, I'm very scared to ride it on. Um, I mean, I can, but I, I personally can't like, it's not my vehicle of choice. Um, I am afraid of not being able to turn around and see cars behind me, especially on the streets of LA. Our potholes really don't do well against a bird or lime scooter. And I always have so much stuff that I'm carrying around with me that I always feel like I'm like shifting it from one arm to another. And I got my kid bag, my mom bag. So it's, it's just not, it's not the ideal thing for me. A jump bike is really great and something that I have been using almost daily since they came to my neighborhood because I have a place to put my stuff. I feel very sturdy and the electric assist actually does go up hills. I was once riding a scooter up a hill in my neighborhood and somebody jogged by me just to give you the idea of uh, yes. <laughs> somebody like, <laughs> they don't really have a lot of power. So I'm interested in seeing more vehicles that are, you know, we here we have a, a Razor scooter product that's a seated scooter that has a basket on front of it. Um, we're seeing some other bikes. There's a company called Wheels that's similar to the new Bird, Bird bike. So I just want to see, you know, dockless electric cargo bikes that I can use to take my kids around. I mean, I want the most adaptive and uh, inclusionary vehicles on our streets possible. I want like a shopping cart that's like electrified so I can like take it to the store just with a little extra push, you know, to get my stuff home up the hills around here. And I think that just having, like you said, these these ideas that we have these like corrals or something on every corner to store these vehicles, whatever they are, um, or if we have, you know, just access to city systems that are, are going to provide something like this, like expanding our local bike share. That's really where we're going to see the big change. This like errand, you know, errand getting, errand, errand accomplishing, grocery getting, like all these tasks need to be fulfilled through these small electric vehicles. And so people aren't going to revert to the car. Yes. Well, this is why, and, and you know, and I know of several, I was just corresponding with one. I think they're all in stealth, but you know, I'm, I'm most fascinated by all these different modes, the would be autonomous micromobility scene and the ones who are working on that. And suppose, and Uber apparently has a skunk works as well. And I'm, I'm curious about like, you know, can you actually make it so that when I walk out of a building, I have an assigned personal micromobility device 
that that can be one of these categories and do that. Um, mm-hmm. I remain I remain skeptical. I've only seen you know snippets of, uh, of 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 video clips sent to my DMs on Twitter, so it remains to be seen. But you know, we'll, <laughs> perhaps perhaps one of these times I'll see it in the flesh. If you're listening, micro mobility companies make yeah. it for the moms. Yes, well, you know, designing cities <laughs> designing cities for women overall is the best way to design cities. I think yeah. I've read many a piece on that, to say the least. Um, well, great. Well, I think we're we're almost out of time here. So, Alyssa, I guess this is the last question. Um, you know, what are you working on now? Where are we going to see you next? Like, you know, uh, LA Commotion is still some months away, so I look forward to seeing you there. But uh, where will you be in the meantime? Oh, that's uh, – I'm so excited. It's one of my favorite events, and I think the way that it's – like you said, it's on that shared street, which is just such – such a great way to envision how we're all going to need to live in the future. So I, I do love coming there just for that reason. Um, I think for me, the, the biggest um, hurdles to get over are not only uh, personal, but also, I guess, professional with, with the, what I write about, but just really drilling down on what we need to do to lower our emissions. I'm not seeing really any large city do enough in the US to match what some other cities that might be in Europe and other places um, to to address the problem and just really keeping the pressure on our on our elected officials and and the companies that provide alternatives to um, make a big deal about that over the next year because well, you know we're got, we've got this election coming up and everybody's trying to outgreen themselves and out carbon emission themselves and um, which is great but um, you just see the numbers of the, all these plans it's like well my plan is a one trillion dollar plan my plan is a ten trillion dollar plan for climate change and when it comes down to it it's just the pretty simple fixes that need to happen are, are mostly on the local level yeah no absolutely um, well great well thank you so much Alyssa for joining us um, and for those of you who are listening at home Um, This has been another episode of the Commotion Mobility Podcast, and we will be back very soon. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thanks, Greg. 